0: Now, among sports fans, and I realize not everybody here is a sports fan uh, like I am, but uh, if you are a sports fan or you know some sports fans, uh, you know that there's great de- debate surrounding the topic of who the GOAT is, right? The greatest of all time. And so I'll get, just give you some, some for instances. Uh, for example, in college football, the GOAT is clearly the man that you're about to see on the screens. Nick Saban, right? Listen, why do you guys hate excellence so much, huh? What you got against excellence? Uh, so this is, un- undoubtedly, you know, he's, he's the greatest college football coach um, in, in history, Roll Tide. And uh, in the NFL, the goat is also undisputable. So I got a picture of the NFL goat. All right, yeah, we hear some boos. Some of y'all still, yeah, yeah, you, you hate excellence. That's all right. You need to deal with that with the Lord later. Uh, but the guys have got more rings than, you know, anybody else. Um, so, there are some, some goat debates in the sports world that I feel like are pretty settled. Um, but there are others where there's still fierce debate surrounding who the, who the goat is. So, for instance, the classic is Jordan versus uh, LeBron, right? And so, um, basically, people that were uh, not around until about the year 2000 will say LeBron. But anybody that actually saw MJ in his prime, it's pretty, pretty simple who the, who the goat is. In fact, I would argue may, maybe the real basketball goat should be a different conversation after this, uh, the, last, uh, the last championship. Seth's got, I think, four rings now, so I think he maybe deserves to be in the conversation. How about boxing? For boxing fans out there, the the, the GOAT conversation between Ali, Iron Mike, back in his prime, so there's a lot of debate uh, around that one. Or how about this one? The GOAT mayonnaise. <laughs> All right? So that, there's a lot of debate I, I hear in some circles about Hellman's or, or Duke's. If you love Jesus, it's, it's Duke's. And uh, if, if you don't... You don't love Jesus, and we'll we'll pray for your soul. Um, what what about one more? Uh, the goat, the goat beard on the new life staff. All right. So uh, it, for a long time, it was undisputable. Jonathan Jones. Uh, we just got a new student pastor, and he's got a pretty a pretty solid beard too. So uh, he doesn't have the golden flowing locks of Jonathan Jones. But, uh, but he's, got, he's got a full beard. So, so lots of competition. Listen, Daniel 8's not about the goat beard, or the goat mayonnaise, or the goat box, or anything like that. But Daniel chapter 8 does foretell about a world power that is symbolized by a goat. Now, not that kind of goat, like the, the animal goat, and we're gonna get into that. If you are newer, newer, are, are newer to new life, we're actually in the middle of a message series through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're in, gonna be in chapter 8 this morning. The first six chapters of this book are historical narrative. Um, the, the last six chapters of this book, which we started last week, are uh, what, what, what scholars call apocalyptic prophecy, and so, as we, the example I used last week is that the first half of the book is kind of like watching a movie, like Saving Private Ryan or Pride and Prejudice. It's kind of a historical movie in a historical setting that teaches us about a time and a place. That's the first half of Daniel. The back half of Daniel is more like watching uh, the Star Wars trilogy, right, or the Lord of the Rings, or maybe an Avengers movie, something like that. Now, I did hear after the service last week that there were some rumblings that some of you guys were upset that I only mentioned two categories of movies last week, historical narrative and sci-fi thrillers. Some of you were upset that I didn't make space for other movie categories for like, let's say Hallmark movies. And um, I just wanted to respond publicly to some of those uh, rumblings for, for a moment. And just say, uh, listen guys, I'm not gonna create movie categories for piles of steaming horse manure like Hallmark movies. Robert, I'm talking to you, son, all right? They deserve no category of their own, shall receive none from me as a pastor who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and the bride. If you want to watch rubbish like that, we're going to have a repentance booth right up here at the front for you sinners who need to meet Jesus in just a moment. All right, in any case, we're in week two of the sci fi thrillers in the book of Daniel, second edition, Daniel chapter 8. If you have your Bible, please go there, Daniel chapter 8. And uh, as you find your way there, let's pause. For a moment, and ask God to help us as we dive in to this, this text. Heavenly Father, we come to you as the source of life and truth. And Father, my confession, I think our collective confession as your bride this morning, would be that much of your word is, is easy to understand, much of it is easy to accept, but there are places in your word that are hard. <laughs> They're, they're hard to understand, and, and, and maybe even more times than not it's, not, it's not so much that they're hard to understand, it's hard to accept. It's hard to apply some of these things to our lives, especially in a culture that just kind of seems to be running against the truth of your word so consistently these days. And so, Father, would you help us as we dive into these ancient words that we believe are, are breathed out by your spirit given to us to guide us in our life, and our faith practice, God, would you help us? Would you help us to understand clearly? Would you help us to apply faithfully these truths to our lives that would make us more like Jesus? It's in his name that we ask and we pray. All these things, amen. Now, what most, most of what we're gonna see in Daniel chapter eight, most of it is gonna be uh, past for us, but you should understand that most of this is gonna be uh, future for Daniel, so just kind of keep that in, in mind as we, as we read Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at, at the first. So last week, Daniel chapter 7, we saw the first vision or dream of Daniel. Now he's about to give us the second one that he had, Right? And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, you should just know, Susa was about 200 miles southeast of Babylon, and, and this place would eventually become the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, it's unlikely that Daniel was actually physically here as he writes this, although some scholars would argue for that. It's, it's more likely, in my mind, that the Lord kind of took him here in a vision, Right and so he's seeing this geographical location as he receives this dream or this vision from the Lord starting in verse 3 he says this I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram so we're going to see three primary things in this text the first one is a ram there'll be two other characters that we see later on a ram standing on the bank of the canal it had two horns both horns were high but one was higher than the other this should kind of jog your memory to last week when we saw a bear where one shoulder of the bear was higher than the other, right? This is similar language here. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, you remember uh, last week in chapter 7, we saw four kingdoms that were represented by four beasts, and Daniel's dream, this paralleled with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which also gave us a vision of four kingdoms. We kind of see it on repeat these four kingdoms in the book of Daniel. You'll probably remember Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, this week in chapter 8, Daniel's going to telescope in on the second and the third of those four kingdoms. So, Persia and Greece For some very specific reasons that we're about to see. Now, I could pretend like I don't know what this ram means and it's all mysterious, but but actually Daniel gives us the interpretation later in the same chapter. So, let's go ahead and look at the interpretation. Starting in verse 15, it says this, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision of this ram, right, I sought to understand it. Good lesson for us, right? When we feel like God is speaking something to us, we should seek to understand it. We should get wise counsel from mature believers. We should dig into the word, we should pray, we should do all those things. This is what Daniel's doing. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, this is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So you kinda get the picture of the Lord is like, hey, angel Gabriel, help our boy out. He doesn't, he doesn't understand what this vision is all about. Right? This is how I feel every Tuesday morning when I sit down to start sermon prep. Like, Lord, send the angel, help, help your boy out. I don't understand. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. This is the normal reaction, by the way, when you encounter an angelic being, right? You fall on your face. But he said to me, Gabriel said to Daniel, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, pause there just for a minute. Scholars debate ferociously whether this mention, that that language there, the time of the end, means like the end times, like right before Jesus comes back and establishes his rule and reign. That's one possibility. Uh, Other scholars would say that this this language for uh, end times is actually the end of a very specific time in history, namely the great persecution of God's people that occurred around 175 B.C., now, I tend to lean towards the, the latter interpretation that this end times is not the end end times. It's actually the end of a very specific period of time. But there are scholars uh, that are on both sides of that debate. Verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. Daniel, not a great time to fall asleep, but, you know, weird, weird things happen when an angel shows up, I guess. But then he touched me and made me stand up. So, so the angel's like, hey, wake up, boy. I got, I got to tell you some things. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So there's the interpretation. There's no guesswork. The ram is the Medo Persian Empire. We saw last week it was represented by by a bear. This week it's represented by a ram. Two horns, one being. Uh, higher than the other represents that the Persian side of the kingdom was stronger than the Med side of the kingdom. Right? It's not uncommon even today for nations or kingdoms to, to represent or symbolize themselves with animals. Right? You think about England. England has the lion. Right? You think about Russia. Russia has the bear. What do we have as Americans? We have the eagle. Right? Just a, a, a bit, a tidbit of, of interesting historical information. Apparently, Benjamin Franklin uh, wanted it to be the turkey instead of the eagle, right? We're glad he didn't win, right? Could you imagine, right, the USA turkeys? And maybe as we look at Washington, D.C., maybe that fits uh, better. The, the, turkey, the turkeys, maybe that, that would fit a little bit better. But Persia, Persia, anyway, right, they employed the ram as a symbol of power. In fact, we know that historically Persian soldiers on their battle helmets had ram's, uh, ram's horns on their helmets as a symbol of the, the Persian kingdom. Now, if you've ever seen rams fight, right, documentary on, uh, you know, Discovery or National Geographic, something like that, uh, when, the, when these things fight, man, it, it is a ferocious sight to behold, right? When they clash their heads together, man, that thing echoes throughout the valleys and the mountains. It's incredible. This is fitting, of course, for the Persian empire who was, they were like uh, unlike anything that had ever come before both in terms of military might and land mass that they acquired for their kingdom, right? Other kingdoms, history tells us, they would just cower before the Persian Empire. That's how incredible and powerful they were. Now, this dream continues on that Daniel's having. It, it gets even a, a bit stranger, if you can imagine that, but just keep in, in your mind that this is, we're watching a sci-fi thriller here, right? This is kind of the idea. This is, this is symbolism, Verse five, he continues, and he says, as I was considering, behold, a male goat. Okay, so he saw a picture of the ram. That represents the Persian Empire. Now, we're seeing a picture of, of a goat that came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's symbolism for speed. Who might this be in history? Greece conquered from the west, just like Daniel says right there, with astonishing speed led by... None other than Alexander the Great, right? So he continues on. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power, and we know historically, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Alexander the Great came in with the, the, the Greek empire that overthrew, destroyed per, the Persian Empire. Verse eight, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there were four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Now again, I could pretend like I don't know what this means. Daniel gives us the interpretation later in the chapter, so let's go ahead and and look at it. Verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. We kind of had that figured out even before uh, he told us, right? The goat is the king of Greece, Alexander the Great, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Again, Alexander the Great. As for the horn that was broken in its place, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Now, we mentioned this last week. History tells us that Alexander conquered the known world at breathtaking speeds before his 30th birthday. Right? Many of us in our 20s, man, we're still trying to figure things out. We're worried about playing video games and eating avocado toast in our parents' basement or something like that. Alexander had conquered the whole known world when he was still in his 20s. And yet being on top of the world, he died suddenly, unexpectedly at the age of 33 in a Babylonian palace. Right? This absolutely rocked the, the Greek empire. They were not prepared for his death. And so that kingdom was subsequently split into Four smaller kingdoms ruled by four of the generals in Alexander's army. So it kind of went like this: Cassander, that was one of his generals, ruled over Greece; Lysimachus over Asia Minor; Seleucus over Syria; and Ptolemy over Egypt. So it took four guys to kind of kind of rule everything that Alexander ruled by himself. This massive uh, Greek empire. And although Alexander's rise to the top was incredible and fast, his prominence on the world stage was brief. But even though he was only on the world stage for a brief point in time, he spread the Greek culture and language to such a remarkable extent that the world was unified in a way that it had never been unified before under a common language known as Koinonia Greek. Do you know what the New Testament was written in? Koinonia Greek. Fascinating how God used even these pagan kings and kingdoms to spread his will and his purposes uh, in time and history. Now, Rome followed the, Greco, uh, the Greek empire. It, w- it was uh, through the extensive Roman road system and the Pax Romana, which provided peace and stability across a known world that the world had never known, that allowed the gospel message to spread like wildfire all over the known world in the first and second centuries. Listen, church family, we are here this morning in Asheville, North Carolina, in 2022, as Gentile Christians, 6,000 miles away from the epicenter of all these events, worshiping the same God Daniel worshiped, in large part due to all of these historical events that had to happen in a certain time, in a certain sequence, just the way that they did. See, friend, God is very much in control of time and history, and He even uses the rise and fall of empires and kingdoms and kings to accomplish his grand redemptive plan in history of drawing people just like you and me out of the kingdom of darkness and placing us into his glorious kingdom of light god is pretty awesome as we look at time and history and all the ways that he worked to to make sure that his kingdom spread the way that it has spread now this vision so far we've seen the ram we've seen the goat persia and greece alexander the great all of that's pretty easy to understand it's it's really incredible though and i don't want you to miss this daniel wrote this hundreds of years before these events took place so it's easy for us to look back in history now and say oh yeah well we see that that happened none of this had happened for daniel so, he, so, God has given him this vision of things that are going to happen hundreds of years in the future. And Daniel wrote about these things with such accurate precision that some critics have even come out and said, well, clearly, Daniel didn't write this book. Like, it's too accurate in the historical predictions. Like, clearly, this was written by someone other than Daniel. It was written hundreds of years after the rise of Persia, the fall of Persia, the rise of Alexander the Great, the fall of Alexander, because there's no way that anybody could have known these things before they actually happened. Now, my argument would be that these critics are operating on the faulty assumption that God doesn't know the future and that he can't reveal whatever he wants to his people whenever he wants. Now, how many of you know that God knows all, and God can do all, right? We talked about that early on in the series. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Your days have been numbered and counted, just like mine have. It brings to memory the great passage in Isaiah 46. This will be on the screens for you. Isaiah writes this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That's, that's us, right? We're all sinners. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, And there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Friend, because God knows the future, God controls the future, and I hope that that's a great comfort to you in these days. Now, here's the second thing that I don't want you to miss here before we move on I want you to know this you can and you should trust God's word. Friend, you can stake your life on the timeless truths of the Scriptures. The Bible is true, and it bears itself out through time and history and archaeology and all of these things over and over and over again. It is true. I think in these days, um, unlike, unlike maybe ever before, it's in vogue, even among professing Christians, to treat the Bible as a buffet of sorts. Like, I'll take what I like, and I'll leave what I don't like. I'll take what I like, and I'll leave what is offensive to the culture. I'll have the filet mignon. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave the lima beans behind. That's kind of the attitude even among a lot of Christians. Let me just say, listen, guys, the Scriptures were never meant to be a spiritual buffet. They are an all-or-nothing proposition, friends. It is a take-it-or-leave-it word. I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say to a, young pastor named Timothy. This will be on the screens for you. Paul writes this. All scripture is God-breathed. You know what that word all means in the Greek? All. 100%. Not 98% and the 2% you don't like, you just get to kick to the curb. No. All scriptures, 100% is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness so that... There's a reason we why we've been given this trustworthy word from God so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friend, listen to me. Critics come and go, the word of the Lord stands forever. And so my pastoral challenge to you in this moment is trust it when it's easy, trust it when it's hard. All right, so, so this, is, this has been easy enough so far for us to wrap our brains around the, the ram and the goat, easy enough, but there's a third actor that's going to come onto the scene now that we must tackle that's not quite as easy. Look at verse nine. Out of them, now Daniel's referring to the four kingdoms, right, that, that come out of the Greek empire after Alexander died, out of one of those four kingdoms came a little horn. Now, if you were here last week, you may be thinking, aha, I remember the little horn last week in chapter 7. That represented the final Antichrist. Well, not so fast. This is a different little horn, okay? So Daniel's trying to keep us on our toes here. Out of one of them came a little horn, different little horn than last time, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land, or Israel, Jerusalem. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. So this world leader, this is symbolic language here, spiritual warfare. He's going to cast down some of the saints of God. This is a picture of persecution. It became great. This little horn became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. This idea of, of elevating himself to the place of God. This is "'Blasphemy, and the regular burnt offering "'was taken away from him, "'and the place of a sanctuary was overthrown, "'and a host will be given over to it "'together with the regular burnt offering "'because of transgression, "'and it will throw truth to the ground, "'and it will act and prosper.'" And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? This is, this is a scary picture that's happening. This world leader is gonna arise. it's gonna persecute the people of God in incredible ways. And so uh, angels and Daniel, everybody's seeing this vision like, man, how long is this gonna be? Because this seems unbearable. And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So what Daniel's doing now is he's zooming in on one of those four kingdoms that splintered off of Greece in Alexander the Great. Now Bible scholars are in great agreement that this little horn in chapter 8 is actually Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled one of the four kingdoms that split off of Greece from 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. This guy in history, you can look him up on Google after this is over. He's one of the great persecutors in history of God's people. He was vicious. He murdered, scholars say, tens of thousands of Jews. Some even estimate over 100,000 of God's people. Now again, this little horn is not to be confused with the little horn of chapter 7, who represents the final Antichrist. But this dude is a, I would argue, a type of Antichrist. In fact, the Bible speaks to this. John, one of uh, Jesus' closest friends, writes this. This will also be on the screens for you. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So the idea here is that there will be many Antichrists who rise up through time and history, against the people of God. And then there will be the final Antichrist who will rise in the last days before the second coming of Jesus where he deals this Antichrist, a final and decisive blow. So Daniel's going to continue to expound on this little horn in verse 23. And he writes this, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face." So there's there's this idea that this world leader, this is an idea of incredible arrogance. One who understands riddles shall arise. So also this is going to be a a wise person. This is no dummy. He's going to be intelligent. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his power. We looked at this last week. There are world leaders that come up that are powerful, not by their own power, but they're led by demonic powers. That is the idea that we get here. He's going to become great, but it's going to be uh, driven by demonic powers. And he shall cause fearful destruction and, ha- and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without any warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Uh, if you know your Bible, that's a reference uh, most likely to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. He's going to raise himself up. It's going to be a temporary place on the world stage. Jesus ultimately is going to bring him down in judgment. Verse 26 The vision of the evenings and of the mornings that has been told is true, but still of the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Now, historically, All these things come to pass in the person and world leader of Antiochus Epiphanes, who I would argue is kind of an archetype or a prototype of the Antichrist. You you might even argue a foreshadowing of the the final Antichrist. He is the movie trailer that you watch before the movie, right? Oftentimes, this is what uh, my wife and I do with our kids. Like, we're looking at a movie that we're going to rent on Friday night, we'll go. Online, we'll watch the movie trailer to see, get a glimpse into what the movie is like. Well, this is kind of that idea. This guy, in time and history, is giving us a a movie trailer of what the final Antichrist himself is going to be like. Now, several things of note about this proto-Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes. The first one is this. As Daniel predicted, this guy did raise himself up in an incredibly blasphemous and arrogant way. In fact, history tells us that he uh, printed coins with his face on the coins with two words underneath. Theos Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He literally is calling himself God, right? This dude, Antioch Epiphanes, did that. So literally raised himself up to the level of God. History tells us that he persecuted the people of God ferociously for right around seven years, which fits in nicely to the prediction of 2,300 mornings and evenings, right? After which time, God strikes him down. Now, his, his gruesome death is recorded for us in the, the Jewish book of 2 Maccabees. Don't go out and buy it, but you can Google it. You can find it online. I think it's chapter nine that his death is recorded for us. Listen, guys, this is instructive for us because I think this is important. Judgment always comes for those who raise themselves up, up, up against God. It may happen quickly. It may take years, like it did in the case of this world leader, but those who raise themselves up against God, judgment always comes for them. Let that be a lesson for us today. Now, here's what's fascinating. Daniel points out three very specific ways, you may have noticed it, three ways that Antioch Epiphanes persecuted God's people all those years ago. Three things. The first one, you notice, he took daily sacrifices away from the people of God. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. The second thing he did was he cast down the sanctuary. So history tells us he actually took a pig into the, the temple, slaughtered it, and defiled the temple so that the people of God would not worship there. So he took away their, their sacrifices, took away their sanctuary, their place of worship. And then the third thing he did to the people of God all those years ago, is it says, is truth was thrown down to the ground. Now history tells us that Antiochus actually gathered Hebrew Bibles and scrolls and burned them. In fact, anybody who was caught with a copy of God's word back in those days, he executed, he killed them. This is the way that he attacked God's people. Now listen, guys, I would argue that these are the same three fronts that our enemy, the spirit of the Antichrist, operates in our day against us as the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, let, me, let, me, let me show you what I mean by that. Let me give you the, kind of a three-pronged attack from our enemy used all those years ago, still being used today. Number one, I believe that our enemy wants to diminish the ultimate sacrifice. I believe that we have an enemy today that will try to convince you, friend, that the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus is not sufficient in your life. That you need Jesus plus, right? So we call that Jesus plus theology. You need Jesus plus wealth. Jesus plus success to be happy. Jesus plus Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. I just want to say, listen, church family, if our enemy can get us distracted by chasing happiness in all of the wrong places, then we are invariably going to live defeated lives. Constantly anxious, consistently depressed, always chasing and never attaining. And isn't that what we see so much of happening in our culture today? The same strategy used all those years ago through Antioch Epiphanes, same thing being used against the church of Jesus Christ today. He wants to diminish the sacrifice of our Savior in our hearts and our minds. Here's the second thing. The second way our enemy attacks us today is he wants to minimize faith family. So you you remember Antioch Epiphanes destroyed the the sanctuary, the place that the people of God gathered to worship together. God's people were designed to be a communal people. Listen, guys, we are pack animals. We are not lone sharks. And Antiochus Epiphanes destroyed the sanctuary, and I believe that our enemy today labors to destroy the new temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I would argue there are many ways that he attempts to do that all over the world. It varies from time to time, nation to nation. Persecution. It's one way I feel like our enemy uses to attack the new temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, false teachings, right, the, the prosperity uh, theology, prosperity gospel, the name it, claim it garbage that's out there, or maybe just kind of an apathetic lethargy that grips so many Christians in the Western world today. Now, I read this, uh, this study, this statistic. This is pre-COVID, and so I'm guessing that this is probably uh, worse now, but this study, I think it was Barna, um, said that Christians who consider themselves regular churchgoers, so this is like the, the cream of the crop of Christians in America, Christians who consider themselves regular churchgoers attended their church on average of 1.6 times per month. What, that's the cream, that's the, the, the top bar. 1.6, I believe that's probably worse now. And so a church family, it would seem to me today that for many self-professing Christians, Church is what you do when you got nothing else better to do, right? When the, when the weather's not good enough to go camping or hiking or canoeing or hunting or golfing, right? Church is what you do when little Johnny doesn't have one of his 47 travel t-ball tournaments that weekend. Church is what you do where you go when you literally got nothing else to do that's better, And listen, guys, I I want you to hear me say this. I'm not a church Pharisee, right? I'm pro-vacation. I took a vacation earlier this year. By God's grace, I'll take another vacation later this year. If you get vacation time, take vacation time. I'm pro-sports. I played sports. My kids all play sports. I spent half my day yesterday uh, at a swimming pool watching one of my daughters in her first uh, swim tournament, and I loved every second of it. I am pro-stay home when you're sick, right? Spread the love, but not that kind of love. Listen, guys, I'm pro all those things, but for so many Christians, the family of faith has become a secondary thing when it was always intended and designed to be a primary thing. This is, my friend, a hallmark of a tactic of the evil one. Dismiss the sacrifice of Jesus, minimize the family of faith, the same spirit of the Antichrist at work today. Here's the third way that our enemy works against the church today is he wants us to dismiss God's word. He wants us to dismiss God's word. Now, if you go back to Antiochus Epiphanes, he banned God's word, burned the scriptures, executed people who were found with the scriptures, and I would say that our enemy today works just as hard to discredit God's word. Did God really say, I mean, come on, man. Come on, Chris, it's 2022. Did he really mean that? Right, and we start to do some hermeneutical acrobatics to say, oh, well, that doesn't say what it actually says, right? There's actually a hidden meaning behind it or it's historically, you know, contextual or whatever it is. Listen, guys, the oldest trick in the book, all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent, right? Did God really say don't eat of the fruit of that tree? Did he write, no, that's not what God, meant. it's good fruit, it's good to eat. Look at it, it's beautiful. Just take a bite, it's gonna make you like God. Same voice whispers to us today, right? Did he really say that? Did God really mean that about sexual purity outside of marriage? Nah, man, he didn't really mean that. Did did God really mean that about financial generosity in the kingdom of God? Surely he didn't mean that for me. Did God really mean that I, I should use my spiritual gifts in the context of the local body of Christ to build up the church and build up the kingdom of God outside of these four walls? Doesn't God know how busy I am in my life? And we too, friend, can begin to cast down God's Word, to dismiss it, to minimize it, to reinterpret it, to fit our liking or our culture. This is the spirit of the Antichrist at work in our age. In fact, I want you to listen to uh, the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to young Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 4 on the screens for you. Paul writes this, For the, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Paul's saying, listen, there's going to be a time when even the people who claim to know God and love God are not going to want to hear truth. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. In other words, they will find teachers, they will find pastors that will not tell them what the word of God clearly says, but that will tell them what they want to hear. Paul says this is a dangerous time and many will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friend, please be alert to the activity of the evil one in your own mind and your own heart because listen guys, it is almost always a very subtle drift. It's never quickly. Like nobody I know that, that, that sold out on the Christian faith just woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm gonna be a sellout. Everything I've believed my whole life, everything I've practiced my whole life, everything Christians have believed for the last 2,000 years, I'm just going to discard that now and become an apostate. That's never how it happens. It's always a slow drift, it's one small compromise at at a time until you wake up one day and, and you're not practicing the Christian faith and you're not following Jesus Christ. We should heed the warning of the Apostle Peter when he says, Guys, listen, we have an enemy. We have an enemy who is like a a lion who prowls around seeking who he might destroy. Guys, listen, we have an enemy. Just like the people of God all these years ago in the book of Daniel had an enemy that they were facing. Now, it may not be so blatant. We may not have people throwing us in lion's dens right now or fiery furnaces or, or guys like Antiochus Epiphanes who are murdering us for reading God's word or believing God's word, but there are other ways of persecution, other ways that our enemy is active. Um, in our time and our age. Look at verse 27 as we begin to wrap this up and he says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Listen guys, sometimes God's word is hard to accept. Daniel got the word of God, he got the clear interpretation and it literally made him sick and he laid in bed for, for days. But I love, the, I love the last half of this verse. Daniel says, then I rose and went about the king's business. What an example for us, church family. We should grieve the suffering around us too, just like Daniel did. We should grieve and maybe even prepare for perhaps the suffering that may lay ahead for us, just as Daniel does in this chapter. But I love what Daniel does next. He arose and went about the king's business. He got up and got back to work. Now listen, guys, it, it is undoubtedly really easy for us these days to look around just like it was for Daniel and be discouraged, right? Wars raging in Europe, depending on who you listen to, were, were, were maybe just hanging by a thread from falling into World War III. Turn on news reports and there's shootings here and school shootings there and, and, and my Lord, gas prices. Man, I had to go lay down yesterday after I filled my tank of gas up, just like Daniel, to go lay in my bed. There's a lot to be discouraged about. There's a lot that could make us sick and want to go lay in bed. But listen, guys, Daniel doesn't pack it in. He doesn't, he doesn't give up. He grieves what he ought to grieve, and then he gets up and he gets to work, which is precisely, church family, what we must do. There's work to be done. Listen, guys, there's spiritual battles that need to be fought on our knees for our kids and our grandkids, you have, I promise you, you have family, you have friends, you have coworkers, you have college roommates, you have all kinds of people around you that need to see and hear about the love of Jesus for them. There are people groups all across the world, in fact, billions of people today that have little to no access to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not acceptable. You know, we're, we're partnering with ministries that are working with victims of human sex trafficking. I think now more than ever, in light of the Supreme Court decision on, on road this past weekend, man, we, we, we're gonna have an opportunity as the church not just to talk a good game about being pro-life Christians, but to actually step up to the plate more than we ever have before. Now listen, guys, I, I sat down last night, it was late last night, and I, I just wrote down some, some thoughts Uh, relative to um, the Supreme Court decision as it relates to to overturning a row. And I know this is a controversial thing, and and I really debated whether or not to to even share this, but I I just feel like it fit in nicely with what Daniel's talking about here. That as as the people of God, there's work to be done. And so I just kind of wrote this down, take it for what it's worth. Again, this was late last night, so I don't have a slide for you, so you just have to listen to me read it. But I think there are four ways that, that we can respond appropriately as the people of God to uh, this, this latest decision uh, in, in our nation. The first, the first response I think that's appropriate is this. It's time for us as the people of God to redouble our efforts to lovingly care for women facing unplanned pregnancies. And, and I just, by that I mean this, guys. Pro-life lip service is not enough. It never was enough. Don't sing it, bring it, church family. The time to step up, words are cheap, words are pretty much worthless. It's time to step up to the plate in new and uh, courageous ways. Here's a second way I think the church ought to respond to what's happening right now, is that we ought to be calling men to courageously take responsibility and care for the kids that they father. All right? Now Listen. Fathering a child and then punking out when it gets hard doesn't make you a man, it makes you a coward. And it's time for the church of Jesus Christ to call men to account and call men to be men and to lead and to provide for the kids that they father, whether they're married to the mother or not, to provide for them physically, financially, and spiritually. And you need to know if you're a part of this church family and that happens and you walk away, the elders are coming after you, all right? We're coming, we're we're gonna be knocking on your door. Here's Here's a third response I think that's appropriate. We will, as a church, more than we already are, we will be putting our money where our mouth is. In the coming days, we will be ramping up our financial partnerships with pregnancy support services like MAPS, whom we give thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to already. That is going to be increasing over the days ahead as well as increasing our financial partnership for families in our church who decide to adopt or foster. And so we have fa- families in our church who have adopted, who have fostered, we've come alongside them financially. We're going to be ramping up that support as well because I think that's important. And then lastly, I think it's important that we pray. That we pray. It sounds trite as a church, but that, that we pray for our national leaders. our our local leaders, our state leaders, church leaders, ministry leaders who are dealing with crisis pregnancy issues that we would step up to the plate in an incredible way. Listen, guys, if our God is the God of life, and I believe that he is, we ought to be the people of life as well. Not, Not in word only, but also in deed. And so let's make sure that the history looks back on us as the church of today as people who didn't just talk a good game, but lived it out in sacrificial ways as well. Look, guys, this gets me excited because this this means that just like Daniel, we're going to have a chance to actually be the church in real and practical ways in the days ahead. We get to be the church. This is why we're here. This is why we're on the planet, to be salt and light in a dying world. There is so much work for us to do. And so like Daniel, man, let's grieve what ought to be grieved in our culture, and then like Daniel, let's get up off the bed and get to work. And I'm gonna borrow from uh, Dr. Tony Marita, one of my preaching professors. I wanna give you kind of just one sentence, kind of the big idea, one take-home. If you forget everything I said today, you remember this, it's a win. Big idea on the screens of Daniel chapter eight. Difficulty is inevitable, but God is invincible. This life isn't always gonna be easy. Some of you are walking in that right now. In fact, the good news, bad news, it may actually get harder in the days ahead. But here's the good news. In the end, Jesus is victorious, and if you've placed your faith and trust in him, you're gonna be victorious with him on that final day. And on that final day, when we see him face to face, all the pain will have been worth it. All the suffering, all the sacrifice, all the tears, all worth it on that last day. So let's live today in light of that day. Friend, listen to me. Don't trust in the rams of this world. Don't trust in the goats of this world, the little horns of this world. Don't trust in the political parties of this world, our cultural movements. Trust in the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, the real goat, the greatest of all time. Life is found in him and him alone. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We are grateful. We are grateful not that your word is easy, but your word is true. And we're grateful, Father, that you love us enough to give us the truth when it's easy and when it's not so easy. We're grateful that you give us truth when it, when it runs nicely with the flow of culture and we're grateful when you give us your word and it makes us run counterculture against the grain of the world around us. God, would you help us to be courageous Christians like Daniel? Help us to be believers rather than Babylonians. Help us to love Christ more than culture. God, would you help us take these ancient truths in a hard world. We look around our heart, it can easily be broken at the chaos and the darkness and the suffering that is all around us. And like Daniel, our temptation sometimes is just to, just to crawl in bed and pull up the covers and, and just wait for you to come back. Just kind of tap out or just try to try to pull away from the world, God. Help us, like Daniel, to grieve what we need to grieve. But Father, help us then get up out of bed and get to work to be about the king's business. God, thank you for inviting us into what you're doing here in Asheville, in places like Myrtle Beach and all around the world. God, we are unworthy. As Kyle said when he got baptized, we are unworthy of these things. And yet, because you love us, because you've adopted us into your family as your sons, as your daughters, you invite us into this incredible work that you're doing all around the world. God, would you help us step up to the plate to be about the king's business in our time for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand, let's worship.